0: and welcome to episode 29 of the wizard files the special podcast series where we go behind the scenes with former staff members of wizard magazine joining us this time around is a man who made the rounds in wizard as the toying around columnist and action figure price guide editor as well as the shavis industry insider magazine entertainment retailing before jumping ship to the competition we're excited to welcome to the show sean Ani. how you doing
1: I'm doing pretty well. I, I like the way you stressed
0: the competition. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely have had your your fingers in a lot of pies, so we're we're gonna yes. be very interested to hear how all that went down, but to start out here, you know, it was revealed in your debut of helming the toying around column, and we discussed this on our main episode, that you had opened your first comic book store when you were 15 years old. So, how did comics enter your life, and how did you become a business owner at 15?
1: Well, comics entered my life with Amazing Spider-Man issue 156. I was about four. My father stopped at a Circle K, and he was like, it's time for you to start Reading comics, and it was the issue of uh, Ned finally marrying Betty. I don't know why it just sparked my imagination, and I just I fell in love with comics from that point forward. When I was fourteen, going on fifteen, we live and we still live in a very small town called Kirksville, Missouri, which is only seventeen thousand people. The closest comic book store was ninety miles away. My mother had a costume shop in an old house and she wasn't using the garage. And I was like, you know, this could be a comic book store. And I just kept working at him and working at him, And they were finally like, if we let you open a comic book store, will you shut up? <laughs> <laughs> and so we came up with a business plan, the whole bit. They loaned me the money and... Within a year or so, I paid them back. It, it worked beautifully. We were three blocks from a state university, just one door off of a major highway. It just it was perfect, and I ran the store for 15 and a half
0: years. Wow. Now, did you have your own stock that you were selling, or were you buying up other people's collections? Like, How did you have that initial inventory to offer?
1: I bought up a couple collections from people around town, but mostly I was just buying brand new inventory, and we were focusing on newer books at the time. Okay. And we we always kinda stuck with the newer books because you know, we were working with college kids who didn't have a whole lot of money, so they weren't gonna come in and buy you a three hundred dollar silver age book. You know, so we were focusing
0: more on the
1: more current stuff.
0: And what was the big seller when you first opened your store? What was everybody interested in at that time? It was nineteen eighty six, right?
1: Nineteen eighty six, uncanny X-Men.
0: Uncanny X-Men, Uncanny X-Men, Uncanny (laughs) X-Men.
1: Back then when you were a retailer, when you met another retailer, the way you gauged how big the store was, was what's your Uncanny X-Men order? I mean, that was just how you knew how big the store was, because that's the measurement we could all use.
0: That is fascinating. How did the other retailers treat you being as young as you were?
1: You know, by that age, I was already six foot four, so a lot <laughs> of people didn't even realize <laughs> that I was fifteen, and you know, which definitely worked in my favor. And no one ever really gave me any grief because they could tell that I knew what I was talking about. I had worked with my mother in her costume shop since I was eleven, and so I already had some business experience. And I, by the time I was twelve, I was doing ordering for her.
0: Wow. Now, what what was your source of information on the industry itself? Like, were you reading certain magazines? Were you checking, you know, the Overstreet Price Guide? Like, what were you using as your barometer?
1: I read everything. You know, Amazing Heroes, the Overstreet's Price Guide, Comics Journal, anything and everything I could get my hands on, Comic Buyer's Guide. I just, I was a voracious reader outside of comics, and so I had a pretty good handle on what was going on in the
0: industry as well. And then, what was your first exposure to Wizard Magazine as a publication, and how did you get into contact? with their editorial team. So
1: my experience with them was just simply, we already had the store, and so we carried Wizard from issue one. And so I, I was reading it as soon as it came in.
0: What was your initial thought of it at that time when there was already so many other publications like you listed? What did you think? Here comes this thing called Wizard.
1: I thought it was a, a slick idea. If you go back and you look at those first couple of issues, they were a little rough. Yeah. But I could I could see that they were trying. And, you know, I, I thought it was an interesting new format. And I liked the fact that it was, you know, smaller, more comic sized. I thought that was an interesting idea. So, you know, we, we carried them the whole time and you know we were happy to do so
0: did what was mentioned in wizard become a topic of conversation or was it all the same stuff you were already talking about with them
1: we were pretty much already talking about all that stuff you know because it was the dawning of image hadn't quite started yet but You know, everyone was starting to focus more on the artists, you know, and talking about, oh, I wish they would let them do more wild things. And then, then, of course, Image came along a few years later. And so, yeah, we were pretty much already discussing all that stuff, but that did help the conversation along for sure.
0: And then, how did you first uh, come into contact with the Wizard editorial?
1: So, Brian Cunningham reached out to me because he needed some advice on prices and at that time Krause Publications that published Comic Buyer's Guide also had a publication called Toy Shop and we ran Ads and toy shop. And I think by that point, we were running two full pages every issue. And Brian Cunningham called me up one day and asked me if I'd be willing to advise him on prices for a price guide. And I said, sure, no problem. And from that point forward, he just would call me every so often to ask me some pricing information. And we got friendly over the phone. And then one day he called me up and goes, Hey, I got promoted. And I was like, Oh, you know, congratulations. He goes, Do you want to take over the article? I was like, um, you've never seen me write anything. Are you sure this is safe? (laughs) And he goes, you, you know what you're talking about. I think it's safe. I was like, okay, let's, let's give it a shot. And. Next thing I knew, I was writing a toy column.
0: So that, that was with issue 34 of Wizard was like your your big coming out party there. Now, can you describe the, the research process for the action figure price guide? You know, our listeners are always curious. They're always like, oh, you know, was Wizard inflating comic book prices or how did they base it, blah, 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 blah. But what were you doing as you were determining what an action figure would be worth?
1: So I cannot speak to the comic side of the price guide at all because I was never involved with that. On the toy side, it was 100% me. And what I would typically do is I would go through Toy Shop, which you know, eBay wasn't even around at that time. So Toy Shop was about the only way to do it. And I would actually, by hand, write down prices of figures from multiple sellers. And I usually did not include myself on purpose and I would average them out. And I figured that was the fairest way to do it because, you know, if somebody did have a bunch of stock on something, they were going to want to inflate it. So if I went by the price that they actually published, I knew I was getting at least a truer version of that. And so I just, I would work out an average and I figured, you know, four to five people selling the same figure. If I averaged the price out, I was pretty close to accurate.
0: Interesting. And for you, like outside of, you know, the mail order or like you're saying, these listings and magazines and things like that, were there places that toy collectors were gathering? Were there conventions? Were there, you know, specific shops that you were aware of that focused just on those toys as collectibles?
1: There was one or two other stores that were focusing a lot on Toys as Collectibles Uh, conventions. They were always kind of a mishmash because at that time, people were starting to look more back towards the 70s. So you wouldn't see a whole lot of current product there. You'd see a lot of the 70s. Really big at that time was like uh, people were just discovering the 1979 Knickerbocker Lord of the Rings figures. Hmm. So there there wasn't a whole lot of current stuff going on. As for where you got information from, again, it was, you know, in my case, once I took over the toy com, I just started calling up all the toy companies. I was like, hey, I'm the new wizard guy. And it was funny because when I got the job, it was six days before Toy Fair. Oh. And I was already going, but nobody knew I was coming as a writer. <laughs> and so i did not have appointments with all the big companies and so there was a lot of begging going on uh wizard overnighted me business cards and i got to toy fair and i was going in and just throwing myself at receptionists going i've had this job for six days please help me (laughs) and to their credit only two companies said no oh so, I yeah, and one is no longer around. One is still around. I will not say who's still around. Uh, the, uh, the other one was Galoob, who after that year, I had a great relationship with Galoob, but I, it was a crazy year. You're, you've you had a job for six days and you're trying to get into the biggest toy companies.
0: Yeah, And do you recall just during that era when you started working at Wizard, like what were the most valuable figures either that were new that had just come out but were super sought after or that, like you said, was it something... From from the 70s that was just like everybody's looking for this thing right now vintage star wars was really starting to take off you okay. know people were starting to look back fondly at the kenner
1: star wars stuff and then the toy Bus stuff started to take off a little bit and i had to chuckle when you guys read back one of my old articles and about the pink and the purple cannonballs. yeah <laughs> At the time, everyone was going nuts. You know, oh, the pink one's going to be so much more valuable. And then, you know, well, which one's supposed to be the real color? And so I went to Toy Biz. I was like, which one's the real color? And they go purple. The pink one was a mistake. I was like, okay, fine. And so I explained that to everybody. And everyone was still going nuts thinking, oh, the pink's going to be so valuable. As you can see, no, it's not.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I was just at a convention a couple of weeks ago. And I saw one on a table for like 7 or $8. I was like, yeah, Yeah. well... now how many different price guides were you contributing to during the 90s because it sounds like in a lot of ways you were kind of the authority for a lot of people and how did that differ you know working at wizard versus contributing to these other price guides and toy magazines
1: well Working on all the others was easier simply because they had already done their price guides. The first price guide I did for Wizard was issue 41, the 300-page massive one. Yeah. there. The, the, sit back. There's a story about that price guide. Okay. They called me up one day and they're like, uh, we want to do a whole new toy price guide. I was like, okay, great. And they offered me a price because it wasn't part of my normal work. I was like, oh, that sounds totally fair. And we agreed to everything. And they're like, I go, okay, fine. When do you need this pie? And they go, six days. And so I wrote a completely new price guide in six days. Wow. Not one word of that price guide in issue 41 had been written before that phone call. So there were little paragraphs after each toy line, you know, explaining that toy line. And so I literally did not leave my office for six days. It took the entire six days to write that thing. Whoa. So Wizard would get mail for me and they would just save it up and then they would send it to me every couple of months. They didn't open any of it. couple of months after that comes out, I get a box full of mail and there's a letter in there. I re- remember to the day I die, <laughs> this person goes, whoever wrote this price guide is an idiot. He forgot the ATAC Marine from Aliens, and he said that Star Wars was the first three and three quarter inch figure line, and everyone knows it was Micronauts. You need to fire him. And I, to his credit, I did make those two mistakes. I did say Star Wars was the first three and three quarter inch line. That was a mistake.
0: Well, and uh, Sean, I will tell you that was me because Atax is one of my favorite <laughs> from that line. I still have him on my shelf over here. So I would have been furious looking at the price <laughs> guide. and saying, like, he's not in here.
1: I actually have kept one in my office since that day. It, uh, it's just like my personal joke to myself about the blasted Atax Marine. <laughs> So yeah, in other price guides I would advise on or edit, they were all completed. But trying to write a completely new price guide in six days was a monumental task, and it will be something i will remember for the rest of my life. I will
0: never agree to anything without knowing the timeline first. I know this is amazing that everything you uh, did in your early days with Wizard, not even a week, always 6 days. Yeah, <laughs> twice 6
1: days bit me.
0: <laughs> the question i have is i'm assuming with Wizard, you know, you're talking about getting the letters with the other price guides that you might have been participating in. I don't know, were you getting a byline like did people write to you from, you know, those particular publications? Would you hear from them?
1: No, those were all just freelance editing. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they would call me up and go, Hey, would you mind looking this over? Do you think we're right? Do you think we're wrong? And so I, I would just edit them and there was never a byline in any of those.
0: So how did you feel about being a little bit more public in wizard?
1: There was one time it was weird. I had decided to work from home one day and my store manager called me up and he goes, right. You aren't coming in today. Are you? I go, no, I'm, I'm working from home He goes, I think you need to come in. I go, Oh, What's broken? What's on fire? What's what's wrong? He goes, Um, there's two guys in the back of the store that just drove eight hours to meet you. And I go, <laughs> What? He goes, They're from Arkansas and they came here specifically to meet you. I'm like, uh I guess I'll come to work. <laughs> so I got in the car and I, I went to the store and I, I met him and chatted with him for a bit, but I was standing there the whole time going, I'm not that interesting. I'm not worth an eight-hour drive, (laughs) but thanks for coming in. So that that was the only time it was a little weird being public.
0: Yeah, that is wild, man. Now, also with that, I'm kind of curious, since you're also running, you know, a comic book business, in addition to all that, what was going on in terms of just like the general vibe about Wizard? Was that a big seller? Like, was there ever any, like, people were like, wait a minute, you write for Wizard, but you're selling comics here? Like, there was no conspiracy theory that anybody came up that they pointed at you?
1: No, no one ever, it became more of a point of, we can pick on Sean because, you know, he's in wizard, (laughs) you know, joking about, you know, oh, you're earning those big wizard dollars now. They weren't that big. (laughs) The funniest time that anything came up about it was a a new college student just moved to town. He wanted to sell me some loose Star Wars figures and he come into the store and I'm standing at the counter. I'm like, okay, uh, we'll take this. We'll take this. Do you know? And I go, do you know what prices you want on them. And he pulls out this dog-eared book and he goes, I use this as a guide, but I, you know, I don't know how accurate it is. And he throws down wizard 41. <laughs> and I stand there, I go, well, I, I hope it's fairly accurate since I wrote it. <laughs> he turns beet red. He's like, I hadn't put this together yet i was like there aren't that many sean Anis that own comic book stores to his credit he was a customer for four years and he became a good friend but we picked on him till the last day he was in town <laughs> that's Not pretty bad. hilarious about <laughs> that wizard so it, it never was a big point of contention no one ever had a conspiracy theory you know they always did want to know oh what's gonna be the next issue i'm like eh, you're gonna have
0: to buy the next issue <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Because just to be clear for everybody listening, you never worked directly out of the Congress New York offices, correct?
1: Never once visited the offices.
0: And yet you were involved in some of the other publications. So what were your responsibilities as part of entertainment retailing? And for those who don't know, what was entertainment retailing?
1: So it was a magazine that really was just about the retailing of entertainment properties. And so I joined with issue nine and my column was called Toys and Game Chest. And the idea was that... Every month, I would alternate between talking about selling toys and talk about selling role playing games because I I did a large business in role playing games in my store. And so I would explain, you know, this is the sort of product that you need to be bringing in. This is how you market it. You know, these are the distributors you need to speak to. Uh, You know, these are sales tactics that worked for me. You know, host a game night, do beginners courses, and all this sort of stuff. So it, it was very much more of a business level about just how you can expand the types of products that you were
0: carrying in your store interesting and to your knowledge was that really part of the model for most comic book stores kind of from the beginning because you know especially during the lean years it feels like it's gaming it's magic the gathering it's you know DD, it's whatever that people are buying and playing you know those years where not so many people are buying comics
1: right and That was what was going on because we were starting to see the burnout from the 90s investment boom. And so retailers were trying to find other categories that they could get into. And toys was becoming a big thing because that's when the the 90s scalping boom started to happen on toys. And then role-playing games was just kind of a natural extension for a lot of stores. But because the Internet really wasn't a thing back then, there wasn't some place for you to go and learn all the information about, you know, all the terminology. I, I remember there's one column I wrote that was just the terminology of role-playing games. Like, what does an RPG mean? What does a card game mean? And just basically, I wrote a, a dictionary because there just there wasn't that resource out there on the internet because the internet
0: was still like
1: news groups.
0: And of course, Wizard would eventually, you know, put out InQuest maybe to fill people in, but in the meantime, there you were. Right,
1: exactly. Now, and Entertainment Retailing ended after 14 issues and I was just like, oh, okay, good, because I wasn't sure how often I could talk about how to merchandise your toys. <laughs> yeah, so for
0: issues 9 through 14, though, I wrote that column. Well, that's awesome. Now, you were also involved in the How to Collect Comics special issue that was sold through Toys R Us, and you specifically highlighted in there the, the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, both in your column and Wizard and in that, as a kind of a hard-to-find toy line that uh, commanded a hefty price. So what do you recall about the scarcity and secondary market scalping of Power Rangers
1: It was insane. You could not find them for anything. You know, as I mentioned earlier, I lived in a town and I still live in a town of 17,000 people. And I went to Walmart one day and they had just gotten a shipment of Power Rangers. I mean, literally right before I walked in. And this was one time it was an advantage of living in a small town. Nobody was buying a single one of them. Whoa. And I stood there for like 20 minutes. I was like, if other people start buying them because kids should have toys. And so I stood there for like 20 minutes and nobody bought a single one. I was like, I'm taking every single item on this rack. (laughs) I bought the entire shipment they had received. And by that night, I'd sold the entire ship. Wow. It it was insane. And I think it was a mixture of the fact that Bandai was not that well known of a, a toy company in the United States at that point. And so they weren't available absolutely everywhere. And so consumers were learning that they only could find them in certain stores, and then that drove a scarcity into their minds that, oh, well, I can't find it in my Ben Franklin, but I can find it in Walmart, so it must be scarce because it wasn't at every store
0: yeah and see now i grew up in southern california and i remember going to a mall and seeing a kiosk there that somebody had set up and the line was just snaking throughout the mall and the guy had it all you know he had like the full set he's probably the only person that was able to get his hands on him and they were yeah. going yeah for like 50 100 dollars you know you're just like i can't believe it so i didn't get them back in the day and i luckily like at an antique store a couple of years ago found like the original five complete and then i I had a buddy just sent me the green Ranger with his shield that i just found the white ranger you know like the, the bigger ones the eight inch ones at retrocons but i when I was buying those I just remembered back to the day where this you were impossible to find you literally had to have all that cash in hand <laughs> to even find something so
1: every few years you see something like that come along and power Rangers though is
0: one that will definitely live out in a
1: lot of memories
0: now let's talk a little bit because uh you were with wizard for how long 17 months yeah 17. And so, during that time period, I'm sure there was probably some discussion, but what about Toy Fair Magazine? Were you involved at all in early discussions? Was there an issue with Toy Fair and you? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, I would figure, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. There had been talk of me being heavily involved with Toy Fair, and I found out I was not involved with Toy Fair when I got a phone call one morning that woke me up saying that Whoever was going to be working on Toy Fair had called me to get my contacts at all the toy companies. And that was kind of the last straw because I'd been in several conversations about Toy Fair in the early days. The first place we ran into a problem, it was in uh, issue 47. I actually went back and found it last night. I was writing about the new Power Rangers toys coming up, and I was writing, you know, Yellow Ranger will come with this weapon, Red Ranger will come with this weapon. And after Yellow Ranger, I'd said, we'll come with a ball and chain weapon, which was how Bandai had written it. And so it said, Yellow Ranger will come with a ball and chain weapon. And they stuck in, after that, a girlfriend as a weapon. Mm. And I got a little... Annoyed because I understood that was the humor of the magazine, but putting it under my byline was what bothered me because that had never been run past me. Speaking as an editor now, when I've had to make comments and articles, you know, you just simply put it in parentheses and you put hyphen editor. And that was all they needed to do was put hyphen editor and I wouldn't have thought twice about it. Mm-hmm. So when I called him and said, Yo, hey guys, I'm not really happy about this joke, I was basically told tough luck. And so that kind of started to sour the the relationship a little bit.
0: I see. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of unfortunate that it went that direction because I'm sure you would have been an invaluable resource uh, to that organization and all those things. But so did it sting just a little bit? Because I'm assuming, were you still selling Toy Fair in your store? I was a retailer
1: and it was my job to carry what the consumers wanted. So yes, I did carry it. Now, after
0: your departure from Wizard, tell us about how you landed a gig at Combo magazine and once again for those who don't remember what was combo combo was
1: essentially a another magazine very similar to wizard but it was in a a standard magazine format and it was really funny because after the toy fair phone call i had called a friend that had worked at wizard previously and i was like hey i just quit wizard and he goes are you serious? I go, yeah. And he goes, well, I just yesterday was speaking to Ian Feller from Combo who lost his toy writer and says, boy, I wish we could find someone like Sean Ani. And he goes, I'm going to call you back in about 10 minutes. And he calls me back. He goes, here's a phone number. You need to call Ian Feller over at Combo. By the next day, I was Combo's toy call. <laughs>
0: That is wild. And for those who don't know, this is how Combo describes itself. Just on the cover, it says, Latest news and prices for comics, non-sports cards, action figures, video games, gaming, and more. So they were just going to cover every industry. Just put it all together.
1: Yeah, and and I think that was part of its downfall. We were just trying to cover too much. I I was there for two years until it, it ended with issue 36. And it was a great working experience. Really, I loved my editor there, Ian Feller. He was a great guy. You know, I was very happy there. And quickly, just dialing back for a moment, There, yeah. there's no Animus. Now, between me and Wizard, Brian Cunningham and I actually speak on Twitter quite often. Okay. And uh, we're, we're very friendly. I never had an issue with Brian. I just, I don't know what happened with the whole Toy Fair thing. But yeah. it was not a pleasant way for that to end. And that was unfortunate. But also, I'm a much older individual now. <laughs> and I uh, understand that things change, plans change. It just could have been handled
0: a little bit better. But
1: I was very happy at Combo. You know, and I, I still got to talk about toys and get paid for it. So how's yeah. that about
0: (laughs) now and also interestingly enough and i assume this this just naturally developed in your line of business but you worked for the sport card price guide beckett magazine
1: okay so it was beckett's but it was actually not their sports card magazine they launched a totally new magazine called hot toys which i was like may not be the best name but okay (laughs) let's just say it did not go well it was not me that time it ended after issue six okay (laughs) hot toys you know it there was an editor change i think by issue three they really couldn't figure out what direction they were going and it just it, it died and so they wanted a little bit more businessy of a voice, and that was fine by me. You know, that was no problem. But when Hot Toys came to an end, I was starting to hear from a lot of the friends I'd made over the past five years writing that all these magazines were shutting down because the internet was starting to take over. And so when Beckett's Hot Toys came to an end, I was like, you know what? This is my second job. I have a primary job, and I've got all these friends who are out of work, and it's just not fair if I continue to try to take these columns. So I actually stepped away because I want other people to, that was their primary source of income. They needed that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so that's when I decided to step away, and I went quiet for several years, and just went back to being a retailer only.
0: Yeah, and so during that period, did you still have communication in the later years of your comics retail business with Wizard or anybody there? Did, were you ever able to make use of those connections for any special events or exclusive items or anything like that in the store?
1: No, not really. Somebody who had uh, been a customer at my store for years ended up being a higher executive at DC. And then he went over to Marvel, and I was just like, "Could you stop hopping comic companies?" But <laughs> you know, he kept you know working with me to get me special promotions because I'd been his college comic book store, so. You know, we we had a great relationship. But Wizard and I, you know, really didn't have any communication. We'd run into each other at, say, San Diego Comic-Con, and, you know, we'd say hi to each other, and that was about it.
0: So did you attend any of the Wizard conventions during that period? No, because they started after I had left. Okay. Now, I don't know how much communication you had with him, if any, but just maybe from your experience, we have to ask, because everybody gets asked this question, Garib Sheamus. cool Fool or Fool?
1: I had very few interactions with Garib, but there's one story that will stick with me for as long as I live. <laughs> we were at a Capital City sales conference, Capital City Distribution Sales Conference, and I was there as a retailer. They were there you know, promoting all their magazines. And this was after entertainment retailing had started, and I think it was like my second issue. And they had an early copy there. I was like, oh, let, you know, let me check my column, make sure everything turned out okay. And I'm standing there, and I'm looking at it, and Garib walks up next to me and goes, hey! we got you a really cool big logo. (laughs) I just kind of look at him. I go, "Uh uh-huh. He just gives me this big grin
0: and walks away. I'm like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So technically it was positive, but awkward. (laughs) Awkward would be the good word
1: for it. (laughs) Yeah, that, that was, um, yeah. So I don't know if I can really say cool or fool, but having an in-depth, air quotes conversation about my really big logo kind of set the tone.
0: Well, let, let's talk about this now because, I mean, really, I mean, your experiences are so diverse and fun, but having been around the collectibles market as a retailer for really most of your life, do you have any advice for collectors that are looking to either, you know, start a business or turn a profit, you know, with comics and action figures and things of that nature? Like, is there a pattern that you've observed over these, you know, 30-odd years?
1: You have to study anything like you would if you were investing in stocks. You have to study the toy lines. You have- have to understand, is there a past history to this particular property? How is it performed? If you're a personal collector, my theory always is make sure you like whatever you buy, because more than likely you're going to own it for a long time. <laughs> if you're a retailer, then just do your homework, 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 homework. I, to this day, I still read Absolutely, as much as I possibly can. Knowledge is power. I mean, there's no truer saying in the world. And so you just you have to study what you're getting into, you you know, just because you see somebody making, you know, during the COVID pandemic, we saw all these people all of a sudden decide that they were going to be selling Pokemon cards, you know, and we saw those videos of people getting in fist fights in stores. Great. Do you know how to price the cards? Do you know how to store the cards properly? Do you know how to ship them properly? Those are all things you need to know. And so just make sure that you study absolutely every aspect of Thus, before you jump in with both feet.
0: Yeah, and the one thing that I'm curious about to know, if you know, this is just my own personal observation, but it seems like, you know, the 20 to 30 year cycle of, if you can hold on to something long enough, there is a very real possibility that it will become a collectible. Even the things that are mocked for years and years, as like, oh, this failed toy line, this terrible thing that was a peg warmer, all that kind of stuff, eventually you know, aside from, you know, super high volume items probably, those things start selling because i often think to myself and i'm someone who collects only for nostalgia so like i have an office full of collectibles so overflowing with them but it's all for me it's not to resell at any time but it seems like if you went to walmart now and you just go to their clearance aisle and you just buy all the stuff and keep it in a box for 30 years you could resell it you know to this generation of kids down the line what is your thought on that type of idea
1: It's about half solid. Okay. (laughs) I I heard you guys specifically in one episode talking about the shadow figures. Right. There's a perfect example for you. Or even the the pink cannonball. Yes. You know, so there is stuff that even the peg warmers of G.I. Joe now are are valuable. Exactly. But for every valuable G.I. Joe, there's a shadow figure. (laughs) Yeah. So you, you still have to be somewhat careful. You know, is it popular right this minute? Then it probably will be popular in 30 years because there will be more people that have nostalgia for that product. But if it didn't sell now. It's not going to sell in 2051 because nobody will have nostalgia for that product. Very good. Very good. Yeah. So just judge what your customer base is going to be
0: in 30 years if you're going to sit on something that long. Well, that's awesome. Now, is there a question about your time at Wizard that I should be asking that I have not asked just yet? It was definitely an interesting time. From the time I had been young, I actually
1: had wanted to be a writer. And so for Brian Cunningham to call me up one day and just go, do you want to write? I was like, is this really happening? <laughs> and how could i pass up that experience and you know and even though it didn't end on the best note i'm still thrilled i did it i still have a copy of every issue i was in you know and it's fun to go back and look at them and now since then you know i i've written for multiple websites since i got back into writing in 2007 you know and i've written probably somewhere around 10 to 12,000 articles for various websites wow. and i'm not I'm not exaggerating, ten to 12,000. But I can still remember every one of those Wizard articles.
0: Oh, that's fantastic.
1: They were special. They they were definitely special.
0: And what do you think just in general, again, with your history as a retailer for so long, what is ultimately the legacy of Wizard and, you know, their family of magazines?
1: It, it was an interesting time. I think that they did contribute to some of the explosion that happened around Image. I mean, I, I remember that first Comic-Con where an image was there and they were against the one wall and Rob Liefeld was standing on a chair using a t-shirt cannon to shoot t-shirts out into the crowd. (laughs) I thought somebody was going to get injured. I mean, it was insanity and it was an interesting time to be around. I'd never seen that excitement around comic books like that before and I don't know if we'll ever see anything quite like that again. I mean, yeah, the Marvel movies are great, the DC movies are great, but they don't drive that many people into the stores, and, you know, you had times like, what was going on with Image, and think back, Rob Liefeld did a 501 Levi's commercial. I mean, come on, and I'm sorry if I'm making anyone drink, I'm aware of the drinking game. <laughs> I didn't say it, so
0: I don't have to put anybody nope. in the swear jar. I'm good.
1: Nope, nope, you, you didn't say it. I, I was the one that was guilty, and that was insanity the the idea you know or that todd mcfarlane was buying these multi-million dollar baseballs you know who ever saw all this coming and right at the heart of it was wizard you know so i i think they definitely have a legacy and the fact that image is still here after all these years it may not be what it once was but it's still here wizard definitely played a role in all of that
0: well fantastic sean really appreciate uh, your time and your stories and yeah i'm sure we could be doing a very in-depth uh, you know series of interviews so i appreciate that but what are you up to these days and where can people find you on the web
1: so i i have a couple websites uh, the primary ones are you can find me at batman batmannews.com, batman-news.com. And you can also find me at thenerdy.com, T-H-E-N-E-R-D-Y.com. And at both sites,
0: I still talk about toys. I will talk about toys to the day I die probably because I still love them. Thanks again, Sean. It was a really great conversation, and thank you for listening to this edition of The Wizard Files for giving us a shot. We hope that you enjoyed all the behind the scenes conversation, and we certainly look forward to many more in the future with all the people who brought you Wizard, brought you entertainment retailing, brought you Toy Fair, and many other magazines. If you did enjoy this conversation with Sean, I will tell you he is going to be coming up on one of our main episodes in the near future to give us the retailer's perspective on what was being discussed and advertised in the pages of Wizard Magazine during this era along with another special guest who has a view from the top you might say. So just keep an eye out for that as we get ready to promote it. Where? On social media of course. Check us out on Twitter at Wizards Comics, on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics and if you are a former Wizard staffer or you contribute to one of the many magazines published by Garab seamus Well, come on out and tell us your story. You could reach out to us at wizardscomicspod at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to get you scheduled to come on the mic and uh yeah, give us a little bit of that insight that you've been hanging on to all these years. But for now, we're closing the files.